Well, Jessica, welcome in. Um, let's first of all, you just kind of give me a background um, as far as like what got you into the industry. You know, wh where did your start kind of come from? What what was that like? Yeah, for sure. I grew up in a rodeo family, so both of my parents, my dad rode bulls, my mom ran barrels, and I have two older brothers, so we just screw up youth rodeoing. They rode bulls too, and so Little Birches High School, we all three college rodeoed down here in the Southwest region. Uh, so kind of just came up through that rodeo world, and my parents were circuit directors for the Mountain State Circuit for eight years, so we helped put on the circuit finals there. They put it on. We were just uh, little laborers for them back in the day, um, and then I went on. I was going to be a chiropractor. That didn't work out. I didn't want to go to school for that long once I got into it. Um, so I went back to Colorado after college and uh, ended up with an opportunity to work at Helomatic. Um, I went there for two years, two and a half years, and worked with the Pro Equine Group and met a bunch of people in the industry that way. Um, and then Megan Scales, uh, she was a huge influence just on my career in general, brought me on at Helomatic. She moved over to Cinch, and so she brought me over to Cinch in 2013. 2013. Yeah. Okay, so as you're going to college and, you know, you're obviously rodeoing as well, right? So what takes you down the the career path of like deciding, hey, I want to be within this, within the Western industry? So when did that start to shift and, and kind of how did that look like for you? Yeah, I, uh, I got the chance after college, I guess I skipped in there. I rodeoed with Tammy Fisher. She had a little girl at the time and she was still trying to make the NFR. And so got a chance to go on the road with her and it was incredible. But to be on the road, as all these NFR athletes know, it's grueling. Um, and so it's kind of a nonstop labor job. And once the season ends, you just start right back over again. And so there's not a lot of time to kind of figure out where you want to go and what you want to be, I guess, for someone in my position. Um, and so when I moved back home, I was honestly totally lost, like no clue what career path there really was. Did I need to go back to school? You know, some of those different elements. And so when Helomatic needed help, when I got there, it was just applicable knowledge at that point because of the Western industry and what we do. You know, people were calling in about their machines and needing to know, you know, what parts they needed to fix it or what machine they wanted to buy. But I could just kind of apply some of those things that I learned growing up. Uh, and so I wasn't necessarily in sales or marketing or any, I was really in a customer service kind of a role when I started there. Um, but the knowledge that the Western industry gives you as you grow up and things like that, I feel like just became applicable to what I was doing. And I could learn and pick up on those things that I needed from the business side um, as I went. And so I'd like to say School of Hard Knocks probably is the best way to describe it, because, you know, when you're raised in the Western industry, I say it all the time to the kids now you have a work ethic that some other kids will never understand. You having to care for animals and, you know, compete, putting in entry fees and trying to win money back when your parents are supporting you through youth rodeo and everything. It's just kind of an innate knowledge in there, some responsibility and some business tactics and things like that. And so to get into the job that I got into at Cinch, I just got this real world knowledge kind of combined with, you know, all the things that I learned growing up and knowing the industry in general. And then I got to learn from people within the company that, you know, maybe didn't have the Western industry side knowledge, but they had the business knowledge and kind of put the pieces together and it formulated an incredible career that I had no idea was coming for me. Right. So what is your job title at Cinch now? So I oversee the marketing department. Marketing manager is my title. Okay. Um, yeah. So the, is it, do you think it's a certain amount of like humility or that kind of a growth mindset? Um, Cause I, I know that like with rodeo, right. You're it seems like you're always just constantly working to get better, right? Mm -hmm. And that's like one of the foundations of 
what I think takes to be successful. Yeah. But within the business side of it, um, as you move over to Cinch, um, you know, you've got an opportunity, but what, you know, what do you think kind of helps that, like that mindset you have to, to kind of get to where you are where you're at now? Yeah. Uh, humility is a big one. I think patience is a big one. Um, because I didn't necessarily know the path that I was headed down. It was just kind of trusting the process and all the things that were coming to me. Because when I first started there, it was really just about taking in sponsorship requests. And that was every form of mail, email, social media notifications, uh, phone calls, voicemails that were coming in, cold calls. And it was a jackpot team roping on a, a sponsorship or a 4-H group or a Arabian horse show. I mean, it was just this vast majority of even parts of the Western industry that I didn't know anything about. And so taking the time to kind of just let it sink in, learn what people are asking for, and you start to create, you know, processes within that of, okay, what do I need to know from these organizations to evaluate what it is worth for the company? That wasn't some handbook that somebody gave us. Um, You kind of just try to learn from those people above you and the peers around you and ask some questions about how other people evaluated that. Uh, try to put your own spin on it. Hopefully you're taking it with a grain of salt and some knowledge and putting into it what you what you think makes sense. Um, I think at the end of the day, that's probably one of the greatest thing our owner says all the time is does it make sense? And that kind of gives you a good fallback of does this amount of money for this amount of exposure, you know, those different kinds of things in marketing. I didn't have some marketing degree where I learned a bunch of that, but you can kind of piece together, you know, what does does one does the risk outweigh the reward or vice versa? Yeah. Um so you can kind of put those things in there, but it took a lot of patience because you feel like everybody around you knows a lot more than you do. And if you'll sit back and take time to kind of absorb and learn and ask questions, you get to that point also. Uh, but it takes a lot of patience to kind of go down that road. What do you think allows you to have patience? Um, does that come from like really passionate about what you're doing? Or you kind of like find the love within it? So you're like willing to work the process or when do you kind of get to that, that spot where you're, where you do have patience with it? It's a good question. I'm going to blame a good upbringing. My parents have a lot to do with that, I think, uh, working cows and doing things on a ranch. It takes a little more patience. It can get a little, uh, emotions can run high pretty quick. Um, and so working through that type of stuff, I honestly, uh, I tell people that all the time. I had an incredible upbringing, but I think watching the reward come through for other people within the company too, seeing how they made it, there's hardly ever a get-rich-quick scheme that actually works. I mean, most of the time, people work long and hard to, you know, reap the benefits. And so there's a portion of that, I think, that I just saw uh, people on long runways. And so, you know, if you take time to sit and understand and learn, you could maybe find yourself in those seats one day. Do you think it was a culture thing with Cinch as far as, like, when you first come on board? um, Like, what was that atmosphere like that? Because obviously, I mean, you've been there for a while now. Mm -hmm. And... But it sounds like right, you know, getting into it, it just seemed to to kind of make sense. And it felt like like you had purpose, but it also like what was the culture like there earlier? What what kind of got you hooked with, you know, wanting to to be there long term or feeling like, hey, this is I'm I'm part of something really unique, right? right? It, honestly, the culture has been great because, and I'll say coming from Helomatic, which was just a smaller company at the time, uh, it's not that you didn't have a lot of support. There just wasn't a lot of positions to be had. And so um, you didn't have a lot of people to lean on or to learn from. You kind of just learned through experiences and and what happened in the day-to-day, week-to-week. Um, and so moving over to Cinch is a significantly larger company um, and just based on their output, obviously. And they 
there was a, a big support group with it. There's, um, I think there's 12 or 13 of us on the marketing team when I started. And so to be in a entry level position on the marketing team, there was a lot of people to learn from and they came from all different areas. It wasn't all Western industry. Um, so you kind of got to learn a little bit about graphic design and how they get into it and how they understand our culture. Um, and there was just support from everywhere. They would come and ask me questions cause they knew that's how I grew up. And so if it was, you know, does this heel shot look right? Or does this, you know, saddle bronc riding picture, are they spurring correctly and things like that? There was a respect, um, I think a big amount of respect between each of us as employees that you never felt like you were low man on the totem pole and you never felt like somebody was over the top of you staring you down. So it was just kind of a, a supportive culture that gave you a chance to just take each experience and each event and everything that we did just kind of step by step and learn the process. And do you think a lot of people within like a supportive culture, they're, they're that way because they are all wanting to improve and get better. Like they, they kind of see the big picture as well. Like this company's going somewhere it's it's kind of it, it's a fun environment, but they they like the direction of it, right? Absolutely, yeah. And I think because I mean I'm gonna say it because I love the Western industry, and I think we're all very supportive of one another in it. That that truly was the case. I mean, there's plenty of people within, especially from the clothing side, when you think about design and product development, and all of those. There's plenty of those that don't come from the Western industry at all. Um, but there's a lot of them that embrace this side of what we, I think, have to offer just as a culture of the Western industry. And so um, there's a lot of support from one another and you feel like everybody there is working towards the same goal. You never feel like you're in a fight with somebody for them to understand why you're doing that piece of your job or why they're you know, designing a certain style a, a certain way. Right. You said the word love, like I love the Western industry, right? At what point do you decide, hey, this is this is what I love to do? Or is there, do you have like check-ins with yourself at, or do you remember those at that <laughs> stage? Like, because I know that, especially going through the, like the college years, right? Mm -hmm. There's a lot of figuring out what you want to do. Like, it seems like there's, there's opportunity within this industry, mm -hmm. but there's maybe not as much money as we hope sometimes. For sure. So finding good jobs and, and good careers is, it's kind of a challenge, right? Right. So, I think the biggest way to be successful is to love what you're doing, Absolutely. right? Like you're going to be good at it if you love it. Yeah. Um, is there ways that you kind of like started to check on that? Like, hey, I love this, but I, I can't do this. Or, you know, <laughs> from like the college years to, to since it was like, it really showed through for you. Right. I And I don't, I don't know that I could give you probably a defining moment other than as I got into my career at Cinch, because I never knew careers like this existed, to be honest. Like, I think maybe naive would be a good way to look at it from a college standpoint. Like you don't realize that some of these people that work at these Western industry companies grew up doing it their whole lives and that some of their, you know, childhood upbringings or their knowledge through just growing up in it led them to a career. In my mind, you had to have a degree in what you were going to do. You know, I feel like that's what they sell you in school. Um, and so you feel like you need to go study something that's going to lead you to a career that's fruitful for your life. And you hope that you love it at the end because they always say, you know, if you love what you do, you never work a day in your life. I still believe even though I love what I do, I do work some days in my yeah. life. All of us do. But uh, I think the check-ins now, I mean, there's certainly things like the oil industry will go boom. And it's like you could go basically sit in the security office and earn God knows how much an hour and just earn crazy amounts of money. But will you actually do anything to influence, you know, other people's lives or help other people or, or do something that means something to you? Probably not. So, but like you said about, you know, pay, it's, it's not necessarily, a, you know, get rich overnight, but there's rarely a time when I'm at an event that I'm not happy with where I'm at. But I mean, I'm 
mostly surrounded by friends or family that, you know, grew up in the industry as well, or we all have a like-minded, you know, goal. And so at the end of the day, you know, my worst day is working an event or a rodeo, and that's not a bad day in my life at all. Right. Um, so for someone that's going through college or starting to seek out careers, and they're going to basically take these entry-level jobs within mm-hmm. bigger companies, mm-hmm. what would be some some things that you kind of that helped you along the way or what would you kind of recommend to, to someone right there that's kind of starting to pursue a career? Yeah. I, first and foremost, I think the game has changed a little bit now because with Jesse Jarvis coming out with of the West, I feel like there's more information from companies for people looking to get those positions and same thing for those individuals looking for those positions that they can seek out some of the companies that have some of these Western industry roles, basically. Um, it's not that we don't want education involved and stuff when we bring people in, but for what we do in marketing, specifically at Cinch, it's re- it's not hard to teach what we do on the marketing side. It's hard to teach what the Western industry is about. So when we start talking about you know junior high rodeo compared to a little birches rodeo compared to you know wherever we're going with college or PRCA or the different circuits or things like that, if it's if that's totally new to you, it just takes a long time to teach somebody how the sport works. I would have a hard time learning all the in- ins and outs of NBA and NFL besides what I see on television game days, basically. So it's easier for us to take somebody who understands the Western industry and what kind of value, you know, a team roping jackpot can bring or a certain silent auction or things like that um, and teach some of the marketing things. Uh, So I would encourage them to, if they, you know, have interest in working at any of these companies to put your hat in the ring. Um, Because if you go at it, you know, with an open mind, you can learn a lot about what the company and the business side has to offer if you can bring your Western industry knowledge to them. And that may not be how every company looks at it. But for us, from a marketing side, like I said, to send somebody out to Perry, Georgia to the junior high finals, it's going to be a long week and a half. So it's going to be great if you love rodeo and kind of see those kids' dreams come true and things like that, as opposed to being somebody who is preparing themselves for a nine to five office. And we send them out to the fairgrounds for a nine to nine day where you're probably covered in dirt by the end of the day and had to deal with field day, uh, weather elements and things like that. Yeah. You gotta, you gotta be able to grind really. Yeah. That's, that's yeah. Uh, a big portion of it. Uh, and I, th- I think that's just most jobs within this industry is sure. it's a lot of grinders and, yeah. and completely, um, it just takes a, a different mindset than kind of what you see in a lot of other industries as well. Yeah. What about the, like for you personally, the the motivation and what kind of like keeps you going and kind of keeps the, the high efficiency and work ethic? What do you think's helped keep you motivated? Uh, I want to say the young athletes. Um, and it's not just the rodeo athletes, but uh, I've, like I said, I wasn't on the performance horse side ever really, or the 4-H side or the FFA side really. And so to get to go to a lot of those events and see these young people who are striving to be whether they're wanting to be the student president of high school rodeo and watching them campaign and be in front of, you know, individuals, or if we're talking about the professional athletes, there's a lot of them now that, you know, they just grew up wanting to do this and they crave it so bad. And you watch them get their first NFR back number and you watch them, you know, win a go around and do all of those things. And you kind of get to be along for that ride. Uh, It keeps you going, keeps you motivated. It's why we do it. Um, I think that the fun thing about working for Cinch for me is that we get to pour back into the industry as much as they pour into us. And so from watching a junior high kid, Cade Madsen, win the junior steer riding back when he was in the seventh grade, sixth grade, and he was drafted to a PBR team this year when he was 18, but he's going to go on a missions trip first before he comes back to be on the PBR team. Like that's, 
it's just fulfilling to watch people be able to go through our industry and have something like that, you know, as their growth pattern. Uh, and it kind of keeps you going that this is a lifestyle that people aspire to live by and we get to do it every day. Yeah. I mean, it's such a, that's one of the most unique things about this whole, whole deal is there's so many, there's so much work that you see in, in all these different disciplines, right. And to see people get paid off and have those check off those milestones mm -hmm. and be part of that journey with them is a, is a huge thing. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and trying to, to help support that person to, to do that. You know, that's the thing is it does, it does take that kind of support system and people believe in, and um, I think that it only encourages it. Right. Right. What about an event or, uh, you know, you say you're part of it. Was there a, a bigger event that was kind of early in your career? That's like really like profound as far as the experience and what you guys provided and like, Hey, this is, this is neat. You know, we're part of something really cool. Um, yeah. was there something that really sticks out to you? Yeah, I uh, first, when I came on board, we were doing the cinch shootouts. Um, they'd been doing them for a couple years before I got there. And so those were big $100,000 payout, fast, one-day tournament-style rodeos. Winners won $10,000. Didn't count for PRCA. We, had to, we weren't partners with them at the time, so we kind of had to tiptoe around some of the rules. But those rodeos were willing to go out and do something for those contestants is kind of how it you know got started. And we wanted to do some radical things at the time. And those for me were really fun because you'd watch somebody show up one day and have a really good day and walk away with 10,000 where most of the time you're at a Reno or a, you know, a San Antonio or somewhere like that, that you have to go through getting across from slack performances, you know, semi-qualifiers, short rounds, everything to win that kind of money. And we just had these one day big payouts where you kind of come out, show up, show out and win 10,000. Um, that was cool because we were an outlier at the time. We weren't really, you know, in the mix of pro rodeo. And those, to me, when you come and watch, San Angelo is probably one of the better examples. And it was one of the first since shootouts. But we talk about it all the time. That crowd is electric in that arena, but they really understand rodeo. And so when they come there, they know that they're watching NFR caliber contestants. And it's deafening noise for 7,500 people. I mean, there's plenty of other places that we've gone that have more people than that. But they're just so excited through every element of it. And it was like, okay, well, this is pretty cool. And when you start to become like an outlier with these events and realize how much, like what all goes into it, like as far as like setting that up, like a, cause it's basically what it, like, I mean, I might be dumbing this down a little <laughs> bit, but like, for example, San Angelo's professional rodeo would have been going on and then a day that they had a break like so it could be before during or after mm -hmm. you guys would bring in the top 10 or 15 in the world or right, right? and then mm -hmm. it would just be well the one header for a big payout mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. so where does those ideas kind of come from as far as like when, when you do try to to do something like this what's what's kind of the root of what what is inspiring these ideas yeah, and there's a lot of brains behind it. I get to talk about it. There's a lot of other brains behind it, but uh, kind of uh, the things that nobody else is doing. Um, and in a fortunate way, we have some basically money set aside or we've got you know an owner that wants to put forth that funding to make something like that be a big splash. And that's kind of it. How do we make it a big splash that's beneficial to the contestants, uh, beneficial to the rodeo, 
and brings the fans together because you need all those elements to keep it going. And it grew to the point San Angelo right now. I mean, for the past three or four years, the shootout sells out that and their short round day sells out in about 12 minutes, the minute they put tickets on sales. So you create a demand around that and that, that exciting atmosphere that you put into that day. We all talk about it in rodeo. I mean, it doesn't make sense on the rodeo schedule to know your winner that day, which is why some of these rodeos have tried to go to a tournament format to make it more understandable for the fans. But in all reality, that people are excited to see that winner hold up a $10,000 check that day. They feel like they went to the football game and saw who actually won. Um, and so it kind of created that element to get that support of fans and people excited about at least just one day. Yeah. Showing a winner that day. There's, there's so many rodeos. It's like, okay, well, a week from now, right. you know, we'll, we'll start paying we'll these see, guys. Yeah. yeah. Or we don't know what they're going to win today, but right. they did good out of this, you know, these 10 guys or whatever it is. Right. Uh, so for cinch, you know, obviously the clothing market's very competitive. So as far as like separating your guys's brand and and being able to to push that, what do you think has been some some key things that you've witnessed throughout throughout your time there? Yeah, for me, I, what I've noticed the most is staying true to our quality. Um, we've certainly stepped out and tried some products that you know we have obviously more than just long sleeve shirts and jeans, but. Um, we've stepped out and tried some products and they didn't work or they didn't meet our quality standards. We didn't make it. Um, we've seen other companies within the Western space or even outside of the Western space be super successful in like a camouflage line or whatever. Um, we've tried things like that when the licensing maybe doesn't make sense or the stores aren't you know, going to support it fully because they already have other camo brands. Then let's not do that. Let's not do things that don't make sense. And so for us, I think we've been able to focus on the core products that we do well with and make those well and keep our you know quality standards high and put that product out that people uh, go out and support and buy all the time. And that keeps consistency for the retailers. Um, we've certainly come out with some splash items here and there and our outerwear does super well every fall. Um, but I've never really seen the company go a little wild and try to create something that we're not going to be good at or try to create something that is in somebody else's space. It's kind of stayed to that core value that we've had of high quality standards and putting out a product that, you know, hopefully lasts. There's certainly pairs of jeans that rip. It's mass manufacturing, but in theory, we're staying to what we're good at and just creating that quality product consistently for our buyers. What about customer feedback and, and like, involvement you guys are at a lot of trade shows i know you personally travel a lot so what what does that kind of how does that kind of work into it as well yeah it's big um you know we hear all the time obviously our sizing has always been a topic of discussion because originally we were made for kind of the steeress or team roper so you, people always notice that we are one size bigger uh, than most other brands and it's funny because the double xl guy loves you if he can put himself in an extra large or a large and the guy who's a medium feels um, a little deflated when he has to put on an extra small and a cinch shirt just based on the sizing scale but we kind of take that feedback in and that's we came out with a modern fit uh cut I don't know, it's probably been five or six years, but come out with something that tries to fit that need still where if we have customers that are loyal to the brand, but we've, you know, sized ourselves away from them, how do we still cater to them in that aspect? And so we try really hard actually to listen a lot of times. And if there's a gene fit that we've gone away with that people really loved, we've, you know, tried to come back and revamp what there was probably a quality reason or a a product development reason that we had to go away with it. And so if, if something like that makes sense to go back to, we, we do try to listen to that feedback. Right. I, I mean, I think that's gotta be one of the most important things, right. As just growing a business is just understanding your customers and mm -hmm. trying to make sure that you're, you're providing them. And, and I think that's, 
listening is key, right? right. Yeah, they'll, they'll probably give you some great answers or right. inspire some ideas along with it as well. Mm-hmm. What about, um, you know, you get to work with a lot of endorsees and, and a lot of kind of producers and production side of it as well. So how do you try to maintain those relationships and how does that kind of look to, to grow out so, to be successful with within that, you know, that aspect of the marketing side of it? Yeah. And that one's hard because number one, I don't like to say no. Number two, uh, there's so many good opportunities, I think, in our industry because um, athlete-wise, we have over 150 just on the rodeo side uh, and the equine performance side put together. And that um, that gives us such a good wingspan in the industry. And there's always more coming up. You know what I mean? There's plenty of guys that are still making the finals in their, you know, later on in their career. And we've got 18-year-olds that are just sailing through breaking career season earning records that we want to bring on too. And so all of it, I think, is just a, a relationship standpoint, having a good communication set with all of the guys as individuals, kind of knowing where they're going and what they're doing, because some of them may not pro rodeo next year, but they're going to put on a lot of clinics and they're going to put on a lot of jackpots. And so it's keeping that communication and and just knowing where everybody's going to be at, because then I feel like we lean on them when we start talking to producers and events and things going on. Are you going to go to this event? Is it as big as you know the producer is selling it to be? Or what do you guys think of this format that they're going to put together? Things like that. And so Communication is probably a number one uh, in what I do, whether that's with the individual athletes or producers. Um, and a lot of times it just comes down to how can we help? Because you can only slice a pie so many ways. So if you think about whatever marketing budget that every company has, how do we fit that in? Does it make sense going back to that? But does it make sense for our athletes too? Is it going to influx, you know, what they're doing? Is it, if we sponsor this event, does it pay out and it ends up paying the athletes too? Is there a full circle to it where it kind of combines? Because it's not that you can't do an outlier um, or somebody that's not affiliated with everything else that we're doing, but it sure helps if you can kind of combine efforts on everything, um, utilize people who are benefiting your athletes and, and producing events that they want to go to. And what does it look like with social media over the last as, as that's kind of came on and like, what, what do you look for within social media and how people are like representing themselves? Like what, what do you think is kind of a, like an attractive way to represent yourself? Yeah. I, I tell people a lot, I get to speak at these Western sports foundation clinics and there's a lot of young athletes there. And that question gets asked all the time. Um, we don't try to look at it. You know, we're not going to add somebody just because they have 50,000 followers. Look at the interaction of who the person is and is it truly them? Um, because there's plenty of times that, you know, over the last 10 years, you've been convinced that you need to have a certain presence on social media. You need to post a certain amount or you need to say a certain amount of things about your sponsors. And I'll say it even true for us and, and myself with the way that we manage our athletes. If you're not good at organically posting about a product, don't necessarily go out there and write me some fake paragraph because everybody's going to kind of know that that's not your personality. Um, and you're going to maybe create fans or you're going to create this false identity of yourself. So my advice is always just to be true to who you are, because if you're not good at social media, you know, organic posts about your favorite pair of jeans, you may be really good about a, a roping tip, or um, you may be better at sharing some of your videos and trying to provide help to younger athletes or going out and speaking at engagements better than social media. So kind of stick true to yourself and, and do what you're good at and not try to be somebody else. Because if you're not, I mean, Casey Field, Tuff Cooper, these people that have a great social media presence, that's kind of organically them. Uh, don't go out and try to be that just because you think that's getting them 20,000 followers or, you know, interactions on their posts and whatnot. 
Yeah, be be authentic. Correct. Yeah, just be yourself. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's kind of the purpose of social media in general, right? Mm-hmm. Is it's you're kind of documenting right. what you're doing. I think right. that was the original design <laughs> right. for it. But I, right. it's uh, it's kind of got a little crazy since then. Yeah. But yeah. You know, as far as do you have mentors or was there some advice kind of going like throughout your professional career um, that you like really helped you out or how do you try to to kind of take that in as far as like learning from people that are that are successful or what, what does mm-hmm. that look like for you? Yeah. And I don't want to go down naming any of them because I'll forget some. But I think back to communication, like amongst us all in the industry, we're all hopefully out for a similar goal on the marketing side if we're in one of these Western industry companies. And so there was a time when we first started it, when I first started it, essentially that we would go um, to a conference in Chicago and it was companies from all over the place. It was more about learning, you know, there's NBA uh, owners of NBA buildings or, you know, marketing people within those teams that would talk about how they activate with their fans, how they push a sponsor. You know, if, it, if you're at a baseball game and they do, you know, the race around the field or they hide something under the hat and they give away a gift card, how they do different activations. And so it was good to kind of look outside the industry for that. Um, but I think, you know, more relevant for us is to just communicate with other marketing individuals within our industry and kind of talk about what they're doing or what they're after because their goals are going to be different based on the product that they're selling or pushing. Um, And so it's just been kind of intriguing to know how they approach their athletes or their sponsorships or their marketing budget and kind of what they're doing. Um, Sometimes it sparks ideas. Sometimes it makes you feel like you're in line with what other people are doing. and, And sometimes it makes you feel like maybe you could do something you know, to influence what they're doing, whether it's a youth team or, you know, some people put on their own events or create a specific product for, you know, Durango coming out with PRCA boots or things like that. Just kind of listening and learning from what other people are doing within the industry is more what I feel like mentors me. Um, There's a lot of individuals that do. So I don't want to, like I said, I don't want to start naming them, but. No, I like that. um, The spark ideas, right? Like Mm -hmm. that constant innovation is is kind of key right because this industry's it seems to be moving and shifting really quickly especially yeah. i think if you look over the last five or ten years i i think it's moved and shifted more than ever right absolutely so when you like look at success is there certain milestones or like what does success look like to you within your brand and and kind of within your job yeah, I think it's engagement. Um, NFR is a really big one, I think, for us because there's so many people out there, obviously. And so um, when we put together that booth and kind of do some interactions and activations with just people that we feel like are specifically coming to look for that product, uh, paying attention to you know what their needs are and things like that. But as our booth has grown there at NFR, uh, specifically Cowboy Christmas, but our presence at the South Point and stuff too, we put a coupon code in there. How many people are getting that and interacting truly with the brand? Um, and I'm sure there's other elements of measuring success that are probably more... Uh, kosher to the business world but for me it's just watching how many people are truly interacting with the brand because high school rodeo is a great example there's a point where you can get stale in a partnership because you keep doing the same thing you order the same banners you put together the same prize pack you do the same thing year over year and you're getting new generations of kids and parents and things like that who haven't necessarily seen it but you're also not doing anything to grab their attention anymore because you grabbed the attention of those 10 years ago um and so kind of watching that too you can see when people get bored or they start shopping around to other locations or they go to other booths and look at you know they're not loyal to your brand anymore as a partner um and so kind of watching that interaction and that engagement i feel like is 
how we measure it. Right. And um, that attention, knowing where attention is at, I think that's one of the key things, right? To to building a brand and maintaining a brand, right? right. It's just seeing where attention is, and and that's that's probably one of the most unique things that you get to do is yes. you're innovating those ways where you get to get to acquire attention or or kind of be at the forefront of that as well, right? What about consistency? As far as like out of out of you, like how, what role does that play in being successful? You think? Yeah. And that's a big one too, because we joke about it. We see the same lead don't follow kind of commercials, or we see the same branding, or we see the same kind of artwork come out of our stuff all the time. It's like, man, I want to really change this up. Maybe we should change our colors. Maybe we should come up with a new tagline. But that's what makes us a brand is our, you know, that consistent, you're going to always see that crest or that lead don't follow. And you're going to know it's affiliated with Cinch if we've done our job right over the last however many years of branding. And so, there's a certain amount of that where you have to slow yourself down because from a marketing role, and I think wanting to be in a creative role, you get yourself wanting to just do something that really makes a splash and really grabs their attention. But if you go so far as to change up what you've done the whole time and change up your branding or change the look, uh, it's not that you can't, but you have to find some consistency in there too. And I go back to the patience thing of just, you see it every single day, but not everybody else does. You know, it's coming across them maybe once in every 25 times that you see it. We're looking at it every single day because that's what our nine to five looks like. So right. kind of, uh, I don't know, it's just don't go ditch to ditch. You can do some changing and stuff like that, but maybe don't go so far as to not be consistent with your brand where when people see a certain color scale or a logo, they know exactly who they're looking at. Absolutely. What about challenges and setbacks? How do you try to look at challenges or setbacks or even failures? You know, how do you try to address those? Uh, I mean, I think they happen more often than any of us talk about because we're going to talk about our successes much more than we're going to talk about our failures. Uh, but don't let them fall to the wayside, obviously. And we try to sit down as a group pretty often post-event or post, you know, certain seasons, summer, NFR, you know, some of those different timeframes and really sit down and look at, you know, what works and what doesn't. From a design standpoint, you know, that group, after our sales team gets through with the selling season, they immediately sit down and look at best sellers or items that didn't meet a minimum quantity buy. And was it the quality of the product? Was it the design we put on it? You know, was it the timing of it during, you know, if we try to put a short sleeve in too late in the year, too early in the year, depending on, you know, different areas, regions of the U.S. that they didn't buy it. So they have constant follow-up meetings as far as that and just try to really gauge what's working well and what isn't. Um, and I think from the marketing standpoint, we do the same thing. Sit down and, you know, we may have tried something new on a giveaway item or, um, you know, tried something new on a sponsorship. And it's like, man, that didn't really yield the kind of attention or the kind of ROI that we thought we would get out of it. And so just using those as learning experiences and keeping notes of them, because a couple of years from now, you might have the same idea and you might be like, you know, we actually tried that and it didn't yeah. work. A lot of accountability too, right? Mm -hmm. Within it and just assessing everything is, is kind of important. I as far as like networking and professionals, like, you know, you, you're well connected within the so many aspects of the industry, right? It's not mm -hmm. like we're just stuck to team roping or barrel racing. Mm -hmm. How important is networking and how have you tried to look at that, like networking within um, e each, you know, specific spots of the industry, but mm -hmm. also as a whole too? How do you try to look at the networking side of things? Yeah. And that one's funny for me because I, uh, 
uh, people have told me I'm a great extrovert. I'm very introverted. I like I love to communicate with people, but like my circle, like I'm I was never a very good, like wide open, go talk to a wide, big group of people uh, when I first got into this industry. And I had to learn that you're just going to have to overcome that because talking to people is going to be the way that you kind of learn more about events. And uh, it's funny how some things get so intertwined. Um, the APHA, for example, how they do the cowgirl gathering, which plays into, you know, certain aspects of rodeo and Western and performance horse that you wouldn't have probably thought you'd see APHA involved in. And if you have those open conversations and that, you know, kind of networking, you learn about things that are new opportunities that could be big for your brand to be involved in, or you see where some of your sponsored athletes are about to be involved with this big thing that's coming down the pipeline. And it's kind of keeping that open mind to the networking, because there's plenty of times if people weren't in my circle that I wasn't quite as open-minded to the conversation and it's, you never know what you're going to learn or what you're going to hear or, or what might benefit you and your job uh, because you were you know willing to have a conversation with someone. And so uh, that networking, I think it's important in any, any job, but I think in our industry, the way that we all kind of accept one another and, you know, we make friends with people that are friends with, you know, your mutual groups. Uh, it has benefited every company, I think, tenfold because of that. But you you do have to be open-minded to it. And you also, if you're introverted like me, you just have to find your comfort zone. Uh, there's times that I have to kind of be a recluse and go back to my corner because I'm not that extroverted person. But it's it's incredibly important to business. So your circle, right? That's a, a big thing. How important is it to have a, a kind of a, a group around you that you can kind of trust and and talk about at least certain aspects that, you know, that you wouldn't really share with anyone. Right. Yeah. Um, and then make sure, cause you got to get good feedback. Right? right. So how have you tried to develop that? Like kind of that, the friendships or a, a few people that you'll kind of keep, you know, yeah. essentially just talk through and work through things. Right. Right. Yeah. That's uh, also insanely important. And honestly, to me, it's a gut feeling. Um, because as much as I do love our Western industry, no matter what kind of world you're living in, there's always a snake in the grass somewhere. So you sometimes have to be careful about the people that are asking you questions about your business. I mean, there's plenty of times that somebody is out to learn what you're doing so they can try to take the idea from you or, you know, jump in front of you on stopping the progress or something like that. Not very often, but it happens. So um, learning, you know, more about people, taking time to get to know them, to feel like you do have that circle you can trust. Um, and then leaning into that once you feel like you've found it, because that you, you have to have it, you have to be able to bounce those ideas off of other people and see what's worked. And, and for me, it's always been, you know, those of the generation before us, that's kind of laid the path. I feel like, I feel like I lean into them a lot more than I do people my own age. Um, and, and I have plenty of friends my own age in this, in these roles and, and that I lean on, but, um, I think I lean into those who have done it before because they've probably learned a lesson or two from something I'm about to try to do that I could learn something from. Right. And do you think it's good to be aggressive with opportunities? Um, I know you got, does it make sense, right? Like that, what a great thing to to say before, you know, yeah. you <laughs> ask yourself. Decision. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but how aggressive do you like to be? Or is there, you know, because I mean, personally, I know I'm extremely aggressive with the business, but I know that it can be a, a hindrance, right? Like yeah. there's times that it can lead to major mistakes. Right. And uh, so how do you try to balance that as far as like, how important is being aggressive with opportunities? Yeah, I think we always go back to risk versus reward. Um, if the risk is not something that we feel like is going to be detrimental to our brand, to our business, there's certainly times where we're like, let's try it. 
I will see what happens. Um, I'm not going to say that Sioux Falls, the cinch playoffs was that completely, but it was a lot of money and it was a, it was something that existed before, but not with that kind of a payout and not with us being the ones to do it and something like that. It's, it is risky, but do we, can we back our risk? So if we don't get the reward out of it, we'll find our way out of it. Basically, if there's an escape strategy, then we can still take that. Uh, I think not being too outlandish with your, I mean, taking risks, but certainly worth taking risks because I don't think you get some of the big rewards without it. Well, let's, let's talk about Sioux Falls because this was, this was a huge impact on the industry, right? Yeah. There's, there's a handful of guys that are making the NFR because of it. And, yeah. And I think, uh, just explain this to me a little bit, kind of take me through the idea, like what, what, how this come about. Yeah. Uh, you know, really with our owner and, and our general manager that we contract with on rodeo production, uh, let's do something big was kind of the initial runway for it. Um, we partnered with the PRCA back in 2018 and we, we were able to put on the, um, tour finale when Puyallup couldn't in 2020 during COVID, obviously. So there was a lot of places that couldn't. We took it to South Dakota. We were able to put something like that on. We got a ton of branding and we got to produce that front to back. And it was like, okay, we want to do that again, but we can't take something that, you know, it was just the COVID year. It kind of, it already existed and it already had a home. And so how do we, we started working then on how do we, you know, put this back together and make a big splash and put this big payout because really what's driving us is other sports. So NFL and NBA and MLB, there's all these playoff scenarios where it's crunch time and the team that's going to make it, the guy that's going to make it, uh, any of that is it's true sports uh, culture basically to have that. And we don't necessarily have that in rodeo. Dang sure the last few weeks of rodeo regular season are exciting, but there wasn't anything that could probably take you from 20th in the world to 14th in the world. Yeah. And, and one more thing I'll add to it right quick. There's been times where there'd be like a small rodeo where someone's at to, and if they do good there, they're going to be into making the yeah. finals, right? So yeah. that's kind of how the season was wrapping up naturally. Yeah. So now it's like you've got a platform where essentially you're putting those athletes in that spot where it's that make or break moment for right. for a handful of bubble guys essentially mm -hmm. in each event, right? Yeah. And we knew this year, I mean, they did it in Dallas. They've done it in Omaha. Like I said, it's never been this big of a payout. But there used to be a format that kind of helped push people at that very end. Um, the difference with this one, and it will come to fruition more in 2024 as guys learned, you can't miss a tour rodeo throughout the year because it made such a big difference for some of those guys that were right inside the top 15 that didn't make it. Um, and some of the guys that were right outside that got to Vegas because of it, they will rodeo differently in 2024 because of that. Um, and it was hard for us because we knew what was coming with this big payout and all of these things. But just as the nature of rodeo, I feel like goes, some guys weren't paying attention that there's always been this tour standings. Nobody really even with our announcement last September, really paid attention and knew what was coming down the pipeline for them. And there's some guys that knew right away and they went to, ducked off to those Arcadia, Florida's and Montgomery, Alabama's, along with your Houston and San Antonio and Denver and everything else that counted and really rodeoed strategically. Um, and so I think we're going to see that in 2024 where you see guys really putting in the effort to get to those tour rodeos and make sure that if they can, they're getting to Sioux Falls. Well, yeah, I mean, that's got, got to be a priority. And I think a, a couple of challenges with that is the fact that, and it just seems like the Cowboys perspective might be, there's it's always changing, right? right. That's always. It's, it's so different it's year to, to year. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so um, 
explain the qualification process just a little bit. Let's just let's just go through that. Is yep. go go to the there's certain sanctioned tour rodeos, right? Yep. And do they have to have a certain amount of added money to them, or how does that all work? Yeah, in theory, it's the top 60 paying rodeos throughout the regular season. So okay. there's 40 that stay pretty solid right there that don't change. There's 20 in there, and we're seeing it this year after Sioux Falls. There's rodeos that want to make sure they are a tour rodeo this year so that they can get those top 50 guys that know that want to go. And so there's some of them looking right now, how do we get more added money so that we can be a part of that top 60? Um, so I think we'll see that bottom 20 kind of change out year to year if committees are willing to put in a little bit more added money or try to find a way to get themselves into that standing. Um, but the top 60 paying rodeos in the PRCA uh, regular season – the top 24 guys go on to Pialop, um, and that's the tournament format, and the top four out of Pialop get an automatic bid to Sioux Falls. So you could have been 24th in the world and ended up in the top four at Pialop. Uh, Clayton Sellers is a good example. He got in based on injuries and turnouts, and he was closer to like 42nd in the world, and he got into Pialop, and he made the top four. He got to Sioux Falls. He, had he have had a great last three weeks of the season, he could have gone from 42nd to top 15. Uh, mathematically, it was doable. From a human standpoint, it was going to be pretty incredible. Um, and he he dang sure put a good effort into it. But the top four from Pialop, and then at the end of Abilene, which is a week and a half before Sioux Falls starts, the point standings cut off for the year. And so it's the top eight in the point standings. Um, if you were in the top four in Pialop and also in the top eight, they dropped down in the point standings. So that's how we got our 12 contestants for Sioux Falls. Okay. So you got the 12 contestants for Sioux Falls. Then, uh, let's talk about the format at Sioux Falls. What does it pay? Um, and you know, obviously we're going to try to keep it where it's, we're showing a winner right there. Right. So how, how, what's the format look yeah, so round one and two, the first Thursday and Friday, it was an aggregate. So they both, each of those rounds paid 12000 to first. I think it was 5000 to fourth. It paid four spots. Um, and then the aggregate, top eight on two, moved on to a clean slate round on Saturday. So we're back to a clean slate. Then it was a top four out of there go to a final four round but everybody on saturday got paid so if you were fifth through eighth you got 2500 bucks which played a big role into some people's standings too because maybe they didn't make the top four but it kept them safe within the top 15 because they took away 2500 bucks so the big goal is to make it to saturday you're guaranteed a check out of saturday no matter how you do um and so then the top four go to another clean slate round on saturday night and that winner won twenty five thousand. So I think it was 25, 12, 10, and 8. I'd have to go back and look. Which, I mean, is a huge amount of money. Uh, obviously, like Logan Medlin is a perfect mm -hmm. example. He uh, never fist pumps, but maybe once or twice <laughs> in his whole yep. career. I was teasing him about it, but yep. you, like he's he's excited, you yep. know, and that is, so it's got it's one of those wins it's it's a huge yeah. it's a huge win for the team and you and you do get to see that emotion as much emotion there as i would say comparable to nfr right yeah. and i think that's that's kind of this unique aspect of it mm -hmm. is you've created a i mean i would a huge event that has a ripple effect, mm -hmm. right? Like, was that was that the goal? Like, did you know that was kind of what we were going to see coming in? Or what did you... Yeah, and we were apprehensive about it because we knew we were going to make some NFR dreams come true and we knew we were going to crush some NFR dreams. And it was honestly, from a production standpoint, 
like at Ryder Stanford ended up making it 15th. But if you could have seen his face when it was going from the eight to the four round, he didn't make the four round. He knew he needed money. And so he ended up making the finals and it's his first NFR, which is thrilling. But to watch some of those reactions come out, the good ones and the bad ones, it was, it was probably, it was what real sports I think are truly made of. And I think that rodeo has it. We just don't maybe put it at the forefront all the time. And I think we created that kind of atmosphere to truly see that out of our athletes because you know, there's plenty that don't win the Super Bowl. They don't ever follow those guys that don't win the Super Bowl, but they're as deflated as can be. And we kind of, I mean, rodeo is such an individual sport basis that you don't always get to see that emotion. You obviously see your winners fist pump and and the guys that do good, but you don't always get to see some of that other half. And it, I think it'll make them hungrier and rodeo harder next year or rodeo a little bit more strategically. Um, and I think there's others that they may never have had this dream come true without it. Right. Well, and... The other thing that happens is, like you said, the the 40th through the 60 rodeos, they start adding more money, mm-hmm. right? Well, that's just more money into yeah. the cowboy's pocket, right? More yeah. money into the industry. And I think that's what's so unique about this is you've got a dramatic finals or mm-hmm. you know, format, right? Or mm-hmm. I, I mean, that 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 aspect alone is really unique, but it looks like it's something that you can build on, right? It's like right. now guys can plan on it. They kind of know what to expect coming into it. Right. And uh, and then something as well as like planning for it all year long too. I think that's a, th- yeah. that's a really, really unique thing. Yeah. It, uh, and that's the hope. It influxes the entire industry. Uh, makes guys want to keep going through the end of the year. There's some of those guys that you may not feel like when you're 25th that you're even going to have a chance mathematically. Uh, it changes it. It keeps people on the road. It keeps them going to those end of the year rodeos. And it hopefully makes those rodeos want to step up, like I said, be a part of the series. Or if you're in the series, it makes you want to elevate your game there too, um, which is ideal. Uh, if if one person wins in it, hopefully the entire industry wins out of it. On a personal level, what does that feel like to be involved <laughs> in something like that? You know what I mean? That This is maybe as big of an impact as you can make. Yeah. In, in rodeo as a sport, right? Like, yeah. I mean, it's definitely probably the biggest splash of the entire year, right? Yeah, wildly fulfilling. Um, and I, I mean, most people would never know the amount that our small team put into the production um, because it wasn't some large committee of people. I mean, there's probably, I'd say 10 or 12 of us that were on it full, full form for a year. And we had tons of help, uh, endless amounts of help when we got to the event. But the amount of planning that went into it and just the thought process behind working with the PRCA and making sure the contestants had as much information as they could and planning and preparing for each of those pieces, it was very fruitful at the end of it. Um, to watch and Emily Beisel get so emotional. She didn't take a good horse up there. Um, she has plenty of good horses, so I won't even call one a backup, but she took another horse up there and won $43,000. She proved to herself that she has another one in the trailer that's capable of winning and doing all these things. And that personal fulfillment, Logan Medlin being one that doesn't always fist pump, um, every single one of them to sit there and meet the governor of South Dakota and be just over the moon about an opportunity like that when the state comes in and supports them. For me to be that close and and to be able to touch all of those elements was extremely fulfilling on a personal standpoint. It was pretty impressive. It was cool. <laughs> um, what about the, you know, the actual governor being involved and so what does that kind of look like? Cause it, it um, I mean, that's not something we've typically, have we ever seen anything like that really? In- I don't, think so. Not not that I'm aware of. Right. Um, you know, when we first started with the idea, it was where are we going to hold it? And there's countless amounts of locations across the U.S. that you can take an event like that, not countless that are going to support you back. Um, and so 
you know, you think about Texas and Oklahoma being, you know, pretty Western industry centric places. They don't always come out and support an event like that, but you can't take it quite so far as, you know, LA or somewhere crazy, you know, far East that you think you're going to get all those ticket buyers. You kind of got to find that middle ground. I felt like on that. Um, but the most important was the support from the state, because obviously we're going to bring an influx um, into their cities and their towns and stuff like that. And so uh, we went to the governor's office with it there in South Dakota, our general manager did, and it really was not even a hesitation of wanting to support it. Uh, she was on board to help when we brought the tour finale there in 2020, when no one else was open to even having events that gathered a bunch of people. Uh, she was on board with it then. And so um, we worked with her on, you know, where it made the most sense and kind of got with the venue there at the Denny Sanford. And uh, her office has been in, in support and on board the entire time. I, we communicated more with them on production than, you know, a lot of other people would guess. Um, and when she came in on Saturday, she, uh, she rolled in ready to carry the American flag, be a part of the ceremony, be on the Cowboy Channel. There was no hesitation. There was no I'm too important for that or I don't have time for it. She she made that a, a mainstay in her schedule for September. That's pretty impressive. I mean, I think to understand like what goes into a production, like mm -hmm. a whole rodeo production, right? That's that's huge. It's this huge undertaking, mm -hmm. right? And then the idea of getting this amount of, of money to a payout and to have state involved and all of it and it seems like it's got a really strong foundation to it right where that's yeah. i think that's the other thing you see with some of these events is like how are they going to do it again right you know what i mean and right. it looks like a it looks like it might not be a, a big win but right. from everything i've seen with this so far it has to feel like a big win right yeah. like as far as the marketing goes as far as what what you're able to accomplish right yeah i think so i think honestly we felt like we struggled probably six months ago to get people to maybe understand what big of an impact we thought this was going to bring to the industry what it was going to do to the standings what it was going to do for some contestants that were number five that might jump to number one, um, what it might do to get people to their first NFR and what it would do with the support we had from the state of South Dakota. It's hard to know if you're going to get 10 people in the stands or 5,000. Um, and by Saturday night, we felt pretty dang good about having a little over 4,500 people in the stands, close to 5,000 on our first year when they don't maybe know all those athletes or maybe they're true fans of rodeo. We kind of had that split mix in there, um, but we found I think a city that embraces what rodeo has to offer. And then they got to see the excitement behind it because it truly was an nth hour final qualification. Um, they got to see that raw emotion firsthand. And so I think we've built kind of that support system of ticket buyers that'll be back next year to make sure and, and watch it all play out for three days. Yeah. I think you've hit it something that's very similar to a Las Vegas feel. Right. Yeah. And, and I think that's the biggest impact on our industry. Absolutely. And, and so that's, it's, pretty impressive to see all that goes. Yeah. Well, Jessica, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you you, you want to add anything? No, I, uh, I mean, it's things like this, that influx our industry, getting that information out there and just being able to talk and the things that you guys are producing and putting out there. So I'm just happy to be on it. No, I appreciate you coming on. Thanks again. Yeah.